Ralph, Ralph, are you still in prison? Well, where do you think I got this suit? In Gimbel's basement? <laughs> <laughs> of course I'm still in prison. You know, now I know how you feel when you sing a song. How? Behind a few bars and can't find the key. <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and his Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. How is the world of Nick Jackson? I mean, the sky isn't orange anymore, if I wanted to date this. But outside of yeah. that, it's, it's very interesting. This is the, yeah, for people, uh, Nick lives in San Francisco, and they've had a, they've had a weird couple of days. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's down to, like, smoke ta- smokestack hazy now, so hopefully that's a good sign. But yesterday it was full-on orange. Yeah, I saw pictures, and uh, I'm not going to lie to you, like, as much as I felt bad for my friends, I was also somewhat relieved to not be there anymore. Uh, it, there's, there's, I, had, I had some survivor's guilt over it. Oh. Well, I mean, don't feel too bad. I had to go into the office, which was awful, but it's down on Market Street, and there was this guy who was playing Careless Whisper, and seemed yeah. weirdly ominous in context. Did you see the video footage of someone took the music from Blade Runner 2049 and put it over shots at San Francisco? No, but I could imagine that. Everyone was either saying, like, we were either on Mars or in Blade Runner, but for whatever reason, my mind went to, like, old anime movies from the 80s. Okay, so now that we've dated this to uh, to, uh, <laughs> September of, to September of 2020, we are uh, uh, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We talk about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to point out, as we have to, uh, our social media, check us out. It's at lunatic daring on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and, uh, lunatic which I've been doing some work on, which is, uh, our website that will have a page of links for you to watch along with us. If, if that's what you want to do, but it also has our sources, our bibliography. So you can see where we're getting our information. And again, if you'd like to read along, that would be great. So, uh, should we get back into it? Let's go. The first time you walk into a convention as a child, be it for comic books or Doctor Who or people who really dig Rubik's Cubes, you feel this profound revelation of belonging. Having a niche hobby, the one nobody in your family understands, one that makes it difficult for you to carry on normal conversations with people who don't want to talk about the history of the Dominion War, can be lonely. Message boards and Discord channels are fine, but are there real people out there like you? The floor of a con reveals that yes, there are. And there are far more of you than you ever thought. As Nick Hornsby wrote, it's what you like, not what you are like, that matters. I can't even guess what was more popular in 1960, puppets or comic books. But since neither were exactly mainstream pursuits, I'm going to guess it was no different when Jim Henson arrived at the 1960 Puppeteers Convention in Detroit, Michigan. He had piled Jane and their eight-week-old daughter Lisa in the rolls for a 500-mile trip. Jim, now that he had embraced puppetry fully, was looking forward to being in a building surrounded by his peers. He had been the only fish in the DC pond, so it must have felt nice just to get out to sea, as he watched puppetry exhibitions from around the world, featuring techniques both ancient and cutting edge. He also met some people, like Bert Hilstrom, creator of Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, and one of the most revered puppeteers in the world. They became fast friends, and Tilstrom introduced Jim to Don Celine, 
his master puppet builder, who had worked on Kukla, as well as shows like Howdy Doody and movies like The Time Machine. He had just finished doing a small puppet performance in the latest Elvis Presley vehicle, G.I. Blues. Tilstrom was instantly taken with Henson, in whom he saw a kindred spirit, someone who, even at a convention full of puppet people, stood out as someone who really knew what he was talking about. Tilstrom knew talent when he saw it. He also knew Jim was going to be big, bigger than anyone else in that room, and that he was going to need representation. William Morris agent Bernie Brillstein already repped one puppeteer and really didn't want another. So my office was on the 26th floor at the time, and in walked 20 It's like a through line of Jesus. It is because Jim Henson, bearded, uh, skinny, came in carrying a box and inside were all the puppets. But it wasn't all the ones that came on Sesame Street. It was the original group. And don't ask me why again. Instinct. He made me laugh. I said, oh, my God. Now, with that, Harry Kalshine. I said, excuse me, Jim, one of my bosses is on the phone. And he had a very high-pitched voice, Harry. And he said, Bernie, Bernie, have you ever heard about the Muppets? I said, I heard about them. I just signed them. However, the most fortunate meeting at the 1960 convention was the least interesting on the surface. Jim became friendly with Mike and Francis Osnowitz, European immigrants and puppet enthusiasts from Oakland, California. Jim liked them both and they were talented performers, but all they wanted to talk about was their teenage son. Jim just had to meet their boy, Frank. Jane Henson was very pregnant when she and Jim made the drive to Asilomar, California for the 1961 convention. She had already made the decision to step down from performing full-time with the Muppets, to retire after the birth of this next girl, whom they'd named Cheryl. Muppets, Inc. was her company, too, and she stayed involved for years to come, but it was time to be home and raise a family. Not much is said about Jane Neville Henson as a performer. She had been so integral in establishing the look, style, and methods that formed the Muppets. However, because nearly every episode of Sam and Friends is lost to us due to the nature of live television. Lost with them is Jane's on-screen career. But for six years, she had stood toe-to-toe with one of the best to ever do it. There's no reason to believe Jane couldn't have become one of the premier Muppet performers if she'd carried on. But she had different priorities now. And at the end of the day, she also knew the Muppets were Jim's. She had been with him every step of the way, but it had been his vision, his drive, that had brought them success. Jim is totally a natural leader, and I am absolutely a follower, Jane would say. She hadn't even blinked when the deal for Muppets Inc. had split the company 60-40 in Jim's favor. At Asilomar, Jim reconnected with the Osnowitzes, who were pleased that the convention was in state that year because it had allowed their son to attend. Frank Osnowitz, 17 and still in high school, had come to the convention with his friend Jerry to perform a puppet show Jerry had written. Frank had heard of the Muppets, but not Jim himself, and the soft-spoken giant made an impression. Quote, He was this very quiet, shy guy who did these absolutely fucking amazing puppets that were totally brand new and fresh and had never been done before. End quote. Pardon Frank's French. Despite what either party wanted, though, there was no way Frank could come work for Muppets, Inc. while he was still in high school. His parents supported him, but not that much. So he recommended Jim take a look at his friend Jerry Jewell, an experienced puppeteer from Minnesota, who had made his bones doing local TV in San Jose. The final episode of Sam and Friends aired Friday, December 15th, 1961, at 11.25 p.m. 
Cheryl had arrived, so Jane had stepped down, and Jerry Jewell had replaced her as Jim's scene partner. There's no way to currently view this episode, although footage of it may exist in the Henson Archive. So, for a summary, I'll just quote the good people at the Muppet Wiki. Kermit sings a song, then discusses the end of the series with Harry, who blows up all the scenery and equipment because they won't need it anymore. While Sam and friends still had plenty of fans sad to see it go, Jim Henson was not one of them. It was time to move forward. And forward led him to Atlanta, where he and Muppets Inc., Jane, Bobby Payne, and Jerry Jewell would film what was sure to become a timeless children's classic, passed down for generations, cherished by all. The Tales of the Tinker D? Muppets Incorporated invites you to watch the pilot production of its new series, Tales of the Tinker D. I tell a tale of Tinker D, of legendary fame, and of its noble nutty king. Gosh, Posh is his name. So, Nick, I'm going to assume, like all children of a certain age, that you grew up loving the land of Tinker D. That's a bold assumption. Um, I don't think I'd heard of it before. I don't think anybody's heard of it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's one of the less lonely I'd, I haven't heard of that before is that I've experienced. You know, Henson had been making Salmon Friends for a while, and they he wanted to take his stab at a half-hour television show. And uh, this was in 1962, and he was basically going to be trying this for the next, what, 14 years? Yeah, more or less. And you can see the early DNA of it in the episode as well. Like, the, it has less in common with The Muppet Show than it would with something like Fraggle Rock or even possibly Sesame Street to a degree. But Yeah, it's so, so for, for all of those out there who haven't seen Tales of Tinker D or, or didn't grow up watching it around the, you know, gather, gather around the TV set with your family every Christmas to watch it. It's a fairy tale story. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's about a, a king named King Goshposh, whose daughter is Princess Gwendolina, the lovely Princess Gwendolina, fair-haired beauty for whose love every knight in the kingdom would surely risk his head. It also features a very kind of early Muppet favorite character of Tamalina Grinderfall, who's the witch in this, and, uh, and, uh, and a character named Kermit. He's he's effectively kind of like a chorus for it. I mean, he, he's playing a minstrel, but he disappears for most of the the action of the the pilot, and then he comes back at the end. He's there in the beginning, and he pops up in the middle a little bit. But yeah, he's the singing. Uh, well, hold on. Let me give you an example of Kermit. Kermit Kermit does not say a word in this that is not sung. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like he's in a Sondheim production, but. Let me go ahead real quick. I'm going to play a little, just so you can hear kind of what, what, what Kermit's up to this time. Your very wish is my command. Before the king I humbly stand. Have you finished your ballad to the lovely Princess Gwendolinda? Fair-haired beauty for whose love every knight in the kingdom would gladly risk his head. Yeah, that one. Have you finished writing the ballad? I have cogitated, correlated, syncopated, and related, orchestrated, and created songs to please the king. Does that mean you're finished? I have finished. Well, let's hear them. It is the princess' date of birth. Let bells ring out the news. We'll celebrate with joy and mirth and a party, I suppose. What was that last word? Suppose, your highness. Out! Out! I'm going to say it up front. I like this one. 
I'm somewhere in the middle with it. One of the things that I thought was really clever was the inclusion of the ogre. Because the entire point of that character is just to provide perspective. Um, the, the closet gag was entirely overdone, but... The closet, the closet bit is the... There's a middle... There's a... I really like the beginning. I mean, this is basically a heist movie. Right? The the, the king is having a, a party for his daughter. And the only person he didn't invite was Tamalina Grindelfall, the witchiest witch of them all. And at first you think she's just kind of jealous because she hasn't been invited. But then you realize that she really just wants to come steal all the presents. It was a, I think it was more directly a play on the, the Sleeping Beauty scenario where they just didn't invite one of them and it threw everything else back, except rather than bestowing a curse, she just wanted to steal things. There's a heavy focus on her trying to give the king a chance to remedy his mistake by... Yeah, yeah. Like, I noticed that I didn't get an invite. Clearly you meant to invite me. You should do something <laughs> about that. I love that no matter how evil, I love characters that no matter how evil still care about etiquette. Can't we go without an invitation? Where's your sense of etiquette, Charlie? Come on, let's start writing letters! I will avoid going on a huge fairy tale tangent, but that makes sense in context. By the way, you mentioned Charlie. Do you know who played Charlie the Ogre? Assuming it was Jim. Yeah, those are Jim's legs. Say, Jim's known for being pretty tall, so that would make sense. Something to be, you know, to note, a couple things to note about this. Uh, it was it was directed by a girl named Carl Dagan, which I can't find much about. Bob Payne, who had taken over on Sam and Friends during Jim's uh, hiatus to Europe. And Jane Henson, although she had technically retired at that point from Sam and Friends, was one of the puppeteers hmm. on this show. So this was kind of an all-hands-on-deck. And, of course, Jerry Jewell as well. I believe she, he played Tammy. I believe he played the witch. Jerry said, it was really just a half hour of one-line jokes. We'd done those kind of gags before on Sam and Friends, but this was the first time we'd stretched it to fill 30 minutes. And that's what's really important about this, right? This is the first attempt at a 30-minute, what we would consider a proper television show. Yeah, I, I think surrounding this, mostly when you saw the Muppets, they were only there, they weren't going to be there for more than 10 minutes at a time, and even 10 minutes was unusual. But they were they were seasoning. They weren't expected to be able to carry a full thing even if they were the more popular part of a programming block they were still sort of rationed out and they were doing sketches right they they at this point they had done they were doing salmon friends they had done and were still doing their commercials and they had done guest appearances on many talk shows but all of those are skits and sketches this is them telling a story this is really the first time i mean jerry jewel and and jim wrote this together and it's the first time that they that they tried to tell a narrative which i i find that notable i also think it's very funny king goshposh is a character that we will see again absolutely because this was supposed to be the pilot for a regular Muppet television show where I guess every week it would be these characters in another adventure. It's hard to say because I, I have to keep in mind that the expectations watching television were different then, right? Yeah. We will come to the point that I would I would want to compare this to in, in just a little bit, but the thing that, that sticks out to me is it's something, I say this acknowledging Jim Henson as one of my heroes, it's something that you would see on in the background, and then look back at once in a while. It 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 doesn't right. compel in the same way. You've got a very solid want line with the witch, and the king has the whole dilemma about having a bunch of sandwiches that he's got to figure out what to do with. Sixty-seven thousand peanut butter sandwiches. And they 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 do tie that into a, a pretty funny bow at the end with 
that being the witch's punishment is that she just has to deal with that problem. We'll play later. We're going to play the audio of my favorite line of the entire thing. And it involves, involves peanut butter. But yeah. <laughs> but I don't... It's not one of their more compelling works. And I don't think it necessarily would have been seen as compelling at the time. Because that... Uh, we, we mentioned briefly the, the closet bit. Everyone keeps going back to the same closet to try to solve a problem that isn't fully realized. Like, even if it is a, a kid's show, there's no through line to the plan. There's just a desire to steal the gifts, which they kind of do, but... Yeah, you don't, you're not watching this for the, the airtight plotting or the, or the deep story beats. Mm. But you're right. It does not hold together. I guess it technically holds together as a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It doesn't really cohere, though. No, and it, it just isn't... It isn't particularly inspired. It feels like it's instead of... Because remember, he wanted to do... He had been working on, since his trip to Europe, he had the idea of doing a Hansel and Gretel production. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the stuff from that worked its way into here. You'll see later on when they do fairy tales, they tend to base him on classic fairy tales. Mm -hmm. This is not an existing property. This is not him adapting some kids' book. This is just something they just made up as a fairy tale world. And so it because of that, I think it feels shallow. Mm -hmm. The world isn't especially well built i don't think they intended to but it it doesn't have a place you know it doesn't have a, a good sense of space it's just kind of it's just a play it's like a 30 minute play of people making bad jokes yeah and some good jokes i agree i i don't when i say i enjoy it i don't enjoy it because i think uh, i'm on the edge of my seat to see what's going to happen to the witch i enjoy it because i think the king is funny <laughs> and it was a, a great line where he gets um, he orders a birthday cake with what, like 357 layers or whatever it is. And it shows up with that many candles instead. And he has a fantastic line where he says, that doesn't look like a birthday cake. It looks like a pastry porcupine. I think a lot of the Muppet sense of humor is still, is here. Yeah. And as you mentioned, we'll see that King character again. So it's, I, I did feel kind of nostalgic when he was on, but looking at the thing as a whole, it didn't come together like a lot of the rest of their stuff would. Again, this was unaired, so it's kind of cool that we even ha are able to watch it. Mm. People didn't see this. This isn't part of his story in a way, right? I mean, he made it, but like as far as the general public goes, this wasn't, it wasn't like, ooh, Tinker D led into this. No, this never aired. They went to Atlanta for two weeks or whatever, and they shot this thing, and then it didn't do anything. Just like so many pilots, it just faded away, and we like to... We like to think of people who like Henson, who are our heroes, and think that everything they touch turned to gold. And as we're going to see, he struggles a while, as, as brilliant as he is and as good as he is, and, it, and people acknowledge his talent, he struggles a while to get the type of show on the air that he wants. He never really stops struggling when you think about it. But but I, but isn't that, would you say that comes sometimes with someone who is a genius ahead of the curve, that that's sometimes just a curse they have? I do think that there is a hunger there, especially if it's something that's related to a particular type of craft or performance that keeps you wanting to reach for more. Um, and Jim was an innovator, so he kept finding new ways to solve problems that he'd thought himself into. But I also think that innovation and that wanting to do new things is also alienating because... Television and movie executives tend to be conservative. It's a business. You want a return on investment. If something is too different or too out there, because what happened to Henson throughout the entire 60s and, and, and a good chunk of the 70s was every executive went, yeah, but puppets are for kids. 
he could not get through their heads that puppets weren't only for kids. And he's going to have that battle for two decades. Trying to convince people that grown-ups or at least families can enjoy a puppet show. And so we're going to see him time and time again have these ideas that are just a step ahead maybe or two or three steps ahead of what the people who make the decisions want. Again, for, for this half-hour TV special, like we noted with Sam and Friends, it's self-contained. There are, other than his legs as the monster, we are in a Muppet world. You know, there's the, the camera and, and everything. We are, we, are, we are in with the Muppets. It is not, they're not puppets in this. Mm. They're, they're full characters, but I don't know. I have a soft spot for this one, I guess partially because I had never seen it. And I thought it was very funny and it made my girls laugh. So I like that. Mm. And I, I was, I also found it interesting that I, I don't think I'd ever seen anybody dress up as Santa Claus in a non-Christmas special. That was a clever tip. I like the idea. I just like the idea of a fantasy world where they're like, yeah, Santa Claus is coming too. I didn't invite Santa Claus. <laughs> like, like it, it, because they didn't have this established fantasy world, they could just kind of pull in from wherever they wanted, you know, and like, hey, why not Santa Claus? That's why it feels, and again, they may have spent, they didn't spend years, but they may have spent a lot of time working on the script, but it does feel like the script was the was secondary. That's something that with some of Jim's more experimental work, I think we're going to see pretty often. Uh, not that the script isn't important, but he he is going to be more concerned with immersion. We're getting to the era now where we have Jerry Jewell, who mm-hmm. is, you know, starts off as a puppeteer, but becomes the Muppets writer and the voice of the Muppets for decades to come. And he found he finds out along the way that his real talent is is writing. I don't know. I, I find it to be, uh, again, like we talked about with Salmon Friends, it's kind of a relic. I, I don't know. You, you're not going to find it. You, you have to look for it. You know, it's on, it's on YouTube, so you can find it, but it's not going to be on any box sets anytime soon. I find it's an interesting little piece. The, the puppeteering, though, the, the, the performances are still really good. Oh, yeah, no, that's absolutely solid. Um, and the, the, the comedic timing, like even with the repeat joke, it was very sharp. It just, on a meta level, it didn't cohere. I do wonder what the series would have been. Like, like what kind of stories were they t- telling? Because this is, because yes, this is a this is a fairy tale story that really doesn't have a moral to it. Doesn't really have a lesson. Doesn't really come together in any kind of meaningful way. You know, other than the bad guy gets her comeuppance. It it does it it does have one of my favorite things. The king orders what like five hundred peanut butter sandwiches mm-hmm. for the party, which again. Come on, dude. Peanut butter sandwiches for your daughter's birthday party. But and he ends up getting sixty-seven thousand. And at the end, as part of the witch's punishment for I don't know, she didn't really at the end of the day doesn't even really do anything wrong. <laughs> like she doesn't really... she like she throws the princess in a closet and tries to like freeze her, I think, or petrify her. She she does she just freeze her for a minute. She was punished and told she must sit in the dungeon and eat all the peanut butter sandwiches. And at the end, it leads me to my favorite Kermit bit in the whole thing. And so the witch was overthrown. She cried and screamed and muttered. But to this day in a dungeon cold, she's caged and peanut buttered. Caged and peanut buttered. I think my favorite part in this is Kermit, though. Definitely. 
I love bad. Like I said I love I love I love a good you know bad stretched rhyme. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a historical note: He is wearing a collar in this for the first time. But he still wasn't a frog at this point, though. No, it was like a jester's collar. And from backstage information or pictures, it was orange, hmm. which you obviously can't tell in the black and white, but it was orange. So he wasn't quite there, but it's a step. Kermit is looking a little froggier. But yeah, I don't think there's much more to say about it. It's a it's it's I said, I think it's a cute little piece and a cute little um, uh, remnant. And then two years later, in 1964, uh, after Tales of Tinker D didn't go, Henson... Uh, tried it again. Hello, and welcome to the land of Tinker D. I have a friend I'd like you to meet. This is Rufus. He's a sheepdog. I am? Well, aren't you? I've never seen a sheep in my life. Well, you don't have to see sheep to be a sheepdog. Matter of fact, you know, I'm afraid of sheeps. You're afraid of what? I'm afraid of sheeps. No, no, you're not afraid of sheeps. You're afraid of sheep. Well, sure I am, because they're very unfriendly animals, sheeps are. No, sheep. Sheep are very unfriendly animals. You've noticed it, too. It brings back King Goshposh, and I think that's the only one. That is the only recurring, because there are three characters in the entire piece. There's the, uh, yes. the watch repairman, his dog, and the king. Yeah, there's Daryl, who's a human being, Rufus, uh, who would show up in other later things. Uh, yes, and then King Goshposh. And this, this story is even thinner. It did feel kind of like they were pulling their punches. Because we discussed yeah. last episode how Jim really likes to either end with an explosion or someone getting eaten. And this just sort of trails off. Because it's more focused than Tales of the Tinker Day was. Yeah, it's only it's only 14 minutes long. And you you have two central conflicts that are sort of related one after the other. One, uh, the dog feels like it's underappreciated because it's not getting to do the fun jobs. And then there's the, the breaking of the watch. It just sort of coasts. There, there aren't really any peaks or or valleys. This was designed to be a pilot for like a children's show, a daily children's show, though. The only thing that makes it still Tinker D is King Goshposh. Like the whole idea is there's this guy and his dog, and the guy is somehow the guardian, the gatekeeper to the land of Tinker D, which they never really explain what that means or how that works, and. He's got a dog who, you know, sounds a lot like Jim Henson playing a dog. The king is coming because he wants his watch fixed, and it's a very expensive watch, and it it play it's got little what like clockwork people in it. Yeah, a cannon. The cannon fires and all that stuff. And then eventually the dog breaks the watch. And then it has a very unsatisfying ending. There's very little conflict in it. Like the king is a pretty nice dude, you know? And He's, he's just asking for his watch to be fixed. And then the dog breaks it. And I think a very lazy play on words. Daryl, the human, goes, uh, you're a watchdog. You could fix a watch. And then it, he just decides to fix the watch. I felt that'd be very unsatisfying way to end it. Like, like there's no, no conflict resolution. Yeah, it's all pretty tame, all things considered. But I do think this, this special is notable. One, it's fairly rare. Uh, it, it's not something that a lot of people have seen. Two, it is the first time that a human being, a human actor, is playing a character alongside other Muppets. Uh, this character, Daryl, he is not... This is the first time he's playing a character with Muppets with no acknowledgement of them being puppets. 
you know, which is something that, of course, we'll see going forward in in movies, especially where the Muppets exist in the in the human world. The other th- the thing that sticks out to most people because it's kind of the most famous still photo from it is you have a man in a workshop with this Muppet dog. And man, it looks so close to Fraggle Rock. <laughs> it does. It definitely does. Especially with like the workbench there. Yeah, it could be it's very, very dock and sprocket. But yes, this one is much more conventionally staged, right? Like it's just a puppet behind a desk. You know, it it just feels I hate to say it, it feels lazier. Or at the very least it feels all right, that didn't work. Let's try to dumb it down. Yeah, I, I would say I I wouldn't read this as laziness so much as a sort of trepidation because he's trying to he's trying to get a foot in. Yeah, I mean, this was two, this was two years later, and so he had learned some things in between. We're gonna talk in a minute about what he was doing, kind of uh, in between these two things. I don't know. It feels it feels so blatantly an attempt to just get a kids show on TV. Yeah. I loved watching this because I hadn't seen it and because it's kind of hard to find. Mm-hmm. It's hard to talk a lot about this piece because the it's literally just King brings his fancy watch, dog breaks watch, and at the end the dog looks like he's going to fix the watch. I don't think he was. I think he was trying to hammer the watch. He might have actually made it worse. Well, he said he was trying to take it. He said you got to take it apart first, which I thought was funny. The only thing we can then assume is that they were both beheaded after this, right? Or they had to go and eat a bunch of peanut butter. Caged and peanut buttered. The dog, he will appear in a couple other things. He'll never have dialogue like this again. But Rufus is a... Is a, is a uh, Rufus, besi- despite being built after Rolf, Rufus looks more rudimentary than Rolf. He's not as expressive. Um, I think they tried... His eyes were smaller. They might have been trying to make him look more realistic, but it could have had the opposite effect. There was something other than Henson's voice coming out of him, and and and, and yeah, it's just a bunch of smart ass jokes, and there are some funny ones. I think. I think when he when he breaks the watch, and he's like, "I think I'm gonna take a walk." Well, now wait a minute. I'm gonna it take a long walk. Bad. It may not be that bad. Now. I'm gonna take a long, what, long where walk. Where are you going? To Australia. No, no. Not much to say about Land of Tinker D, other than I'm glad I saw it, and it's it's interesting to see these early attempts at making television because as we know he loved television so much and so to see these early attempts are almost they're almost like student films that's a good way to look at them i think because he's you can see those those parts where he is refining aspects of his craft i think we've said all we can really say about the land of tinker d uh i'm waiting for the third one i guess we'll have to wait for the for for (laughs) see how it finishes off but they were but they were two very different shows and i did enjoy Tale of Tinker D better than Land of Tinker D, obviously, just because it it, it at least finishes its story, mm-hmm. <laughs> which Land of Tinker D kind of doesn't. Just sort of stops. The castle now is filled with joy. I bid farewell to thee. Until the next time I resume my tale of Tinker D. The tale of Tinker D. In 1962... Purina Dog Food contracted Muppets, Inc. for seven television commercials. They would be short two-handers, like Wilkins and Wonkins, and Purina wanted new characters. Specifically, of course, dogs. Henson created the skinny and oddly bespectacled Baskerville the Hound, and his more low-key, floppy-eared buddy, Rolf. Baskerville was a pretty simple puppet, but Rolf was more complex. He was the first Muppet not built by Jim or Jane Henson. Instead, he delivered a sketch of the character to Burr Tilstrom's puppet builder, Don Celine, whom Jim had met in Detroit. 
It was then up to Celine to design and build Rolf, doing his best to capture the essence of the original sketch. A lot needs to be said about Don Celine, and we will try to say as much as we can as the podcast goes along. But for brevity's sake, let's just say Jim was pleased with the puppet and immediately hired Celine to be the head puppet builder for Muppets, Inc. He is, other than Henson, the person most responsible for the look of the modern Muppet. We will talk about Don more later, I promise. The commercials themselves aren't especially notable. They feel like Muppet commercials, but they're safer and maybe even cute. And I counted zero homicides, which, I mean, that's no good. Purina must have agreed and didn't order any more spots. And the dogs were shoved into a drawer and forgotten. I tell you, Ralph, there's only one answer to this dog food problem. Asparagus. Tender, succulent asparagus. Well, it may be all right for you, Baskerville, but I like Purina dog chow. But asparagus is nourishing. It's got vitamins. Purina dog chow is more nourishing. It's got all 43 vitamins and minerals a fella needs to make him feel all dog. Ha! Asparagus tastes good. Purina dog chow tastes better. It's flavor charged. Look, Baskerville, you go and enjoy your asparagus. It's past my chow time. In 1963, Muppets Inc. and the Henson family moved to New York City. Jim and Jerry Jewell had already been going back and forth, doing semi-regular appearances on the Today Show. The Hensons rented an apartment on the east side, a seven-minute walk from the new home of Muppets, Inc., the top floor of a townhouse on East 53rd Street. If you were going to work in entertainment, you needed to be in one of two places, and Los Angeles was too far away from Deer for the Hensons to even consider it. The move to Manhattan was a big one. The Muppets were no longer just a couple of college kids, trying to make each other laugh at 11.25 every night. They were now a serious enterprise. The townhouse is where they set up the first of many Muppet workshops, where Don Celine would build the puppets for whatever work came their way. And work was coming, just not the type Jim had planned. He had been rolling several ideas around in his head since Europe, including an elaborate production of Hansel and Gretel, and a nebulous idea for a variety show called Zookus, a zoo plus a circus which never got any further than scribbles in his notebook. I'm not sure any of his plans involved a talking dog and a singing cowboy. Every morning at the mine, you can see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. Everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Big John, Big John, a big bad John. Jimmy Dean was a country novelty singer who is, yes, the dude on the sausage packages. He'd had one hit song, Big Bad John. He was a goofy, good-looking kid who could carry a tune and came straight out of Texas. After doing a guest hosting gig on The Tonight Show, he was offered one of his own. They wanted the Muppets to come on as early guests and thought Jimmy's aw shucks delivery might play well against Henson's zanier characters. They asked them to do the first seven episodes of the show's run, just to try it out. The show was also shot in New York, the new home of Muppet Sink. Bernie Burlstein convinced Jim to take the job. Work was work, you know, and he had an idea of which character would be up for the task. So genius that I am, I hear Jimmy Dean, 
I hear country, I hear country porch, and on the country porch happens to be a dog, which Jim happened to have. In August of 1963, Jim and Rolf arrived for the first taping of the Jimmy Dean show. By the end of the week, the chemistry between the dog and the star would be clear to everyone, and he would be brought on as a regular. Within months, he would be getting more fan mail than Dean himself. Uh, paragraph 9, subsection 27. Oh, black Well, if you pay what you're supposed to, you go to the poorhouse. And if you don't, you go to the big house. <laughs> hey, Ralph. Ralph, are you complaining about the income tax? You're darn right. Look, it's only money. You can't take it with you. I just wish they'd leave me enough to get there. Now, you know, I, I'm, really, I, I'm surprised at you. I am really surprised. What? Do you know that I consider it a privilege to pay my tax? Yes, sir. I'm happy to pay it. I can't wait until April the 15th comes around every year. Folks, will you please look under your seats? Jimmy's lost his marbles. Now, well, <laughs> now, let, let, let. So, being a live hand puppet, it takes two people to operate Ralph. One for the head and left arm, the operator, and one for the right, the assistant. They would watch a live feed of the show on a monitor on the floor at their feet and adjust their performance based on what they saw, while also trying to coordinate with each other to make sure Rolf's right paw wasn't zigging when it was supposed to be zagging. It was a tight fit down there, with two performers practically on top of each other. Not a lot of room in an old hound dog for two adults to share. On the Purina commercials, Jerry Jewell had assisted Jim, working the right paw while the boss handled the rest. But by the time the show rolled around, Jewell had already started to focus more on the writing side of things in Muppet World. He was replaced by a fresh out of high school teenager from Oakland, who had enrolled at NYU but had no intention of attending class. Frank Osnowitz, although it was just Oz now, had come to New York, and he was ready to work. So, Nick, we loved the Wilkins and Wilkins commercials, right? Oh, absolutely. Those hold up really well. They do. They're real funny. These Purina commercials kind of follow the same template. They don't, though. They follow pretty... There's not the same kind of antagonism that you would see in the Wilkins and Wilkins ones. They seem a lot more tame. They do seem a lot more tame. Uh, There's there's no violence. (laughs) The humor... I mean, Baskerville's honestly just not that compelling of a character. Yeah. He tried. He he does try. He does try. Now that we're we're talking about, we're not going to get too much into the Purina commercials because exactly that's what they really are. They're watered down versions of Muppets Inc. commercials. But there are a couple important things. One, the Purina commercials were like 1962, so this is before uh, Rufus. But Rolf was one of the first Muppets that was not abstract. You know, if you think about Sam and Friends Muppets and things like that. You know, you don't have like, oh, look, this one's a bird or, or this one's a, an alligator. Kermit's not a frog yet. Kermit's just an amorphous sock. Everyone's vaguely humanoid. And so it is interesting in this case, they were hired by Purina, but they wanted dogs. And so they made two puppets that were distinctly dogs. The other thing to, t- to notice about Rolf before we take off talking about him is that he was built by Don Celine, who would end up becoming the guy who figured out what the what I would call the modern Muppet looked like. The the Rolfs and the Fozzies and the Piggies. These kind of, you know, Kermit is a, is a different beast. But these more kind of, I, I don't know what we call them, full-figured. They're a little... Better realized? I don't know if that's fair. They've got a weight to them. They feel like they, 
And maybe that's because he's working in this case. Rolf is a, a live hand puppet, mm-hmm. and that is something that Henson definitely helped pioneer. Um, uh, Rufus, what's his name? Rufus was also a live hand puppet. Yeah, there's not much to be said. You can check them out. I think they only made seven. They didn't get renewed, so they yeah. they would have had a very limited set. And I think they hired Rolf to do. I think Rolf got picked up for some commercials for other brands as well. He was attached to IBM, wasn't he? Or was that later? Yeah, I know he ended up doing some IBM meeting films. And he would show up and stuff a lot because, as we're about to talk about, he was the Muppets' first national star. Mm. Kermit the Frog is the symbol of the Muppets. It is Henson. The Henson logo has the little green collar on it. In Los Angeles on, god damn, now I'm going to miss it. I think it's on La Cienega or La Brea. And I say that, it's probably on Fairfax. Hey, Chad here. The Jim Henson Company lot, which was originally Charlie Chaplin Studios, is at 1416 North La Brea Avenue in Hollywood, right at La Brea and Sunset. I couldn't let that go. I lived in Los Angeles for too long to let that go. As you drive by it, you see this big statue of Kermit the Frog in the courtyard. Kermit is the symbol of the Muppets, but he wasn't their first star. While these commercials didn't make Rolf a star, did you know did you know who Jimmy Dean was when we started this? I think when I heard his name mentioned initially I was thinking of James Dean which I know was wrong. Outside of that I I'd, I'd heard of the sausages but I I didn't have any familiarity with his his music career or anything like that. His music career wasn't really anything to write home about, but I don't think he expected <laughs> the dog to be more popular than him. Probably not. But they, but I'll say this: they have him and Henson have pretty good chemistry. Oh, it was, it, that holds up well today. I think of the things that we reviewed for this week, watching those segments was something that I I was genuinely enjoying. Rolf and Jimmy, with Jimmy being the straight man, was really solid. Not to mention Rolf's very interesting crush on Lassie that <laughs> kept coming up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of them available. I probably watched like two dozen of the clips there's more out there there but it's not necessary to watch them all it is notable that this is the first thing that henson and jewel they didn't write these this stuff was all at the mercy of the writers for the jimmy dean show guys like buddy arnold and will glickman who were old school like they wrote for milton burl which i will say excuses a few of the more dated kind of uh women in the kitchen references every once in a while there's a couple of jokes uh at the expense of like i don't know men who uh who who do ballet i heard there's one that's kind of a you know a little bit of a fruity joke you know and again i'm not saying that they would have been above making those jokes back in 1963 but uh, they were definitely coming from this more hard scrabble group of comedy writers Mm -hmm. but i think that comes across too it's not necessarily muppet humor it is and it isn't like i can definitely see that Jim would have learned something from his time with these writers or with these writers' material, and maybe Jerry Joel did as well, because the the comedic timing. We we spoke to the chemistry just a second ago, but there's there's one clip in which the central conceit of it was that Rolf had messed up his bit, but you can tell that it's all pretty well constructed, and Jimmy Dean and Rolf keep going back and forth about how he's actually supposed to do the bit, and there's also the undercurrent about. Rolf not necessarily liking what had been written for him, but or Jimmy worrying that Rolf hadn't liked it. It's significantly tighter than we would have seen with Tinkerty, with yes. either Tinkerty. Seeing where they, they end up going after this, it makes sense that they could have used this as a, a sort of a stepping stone to sort of solidifying 
that Muppet sense of humor. Because it even if this wasn't written by the Muppet writers, it felt more like Muppet humor. Just because of like the rapid fire that wasn't entirely reliant on word association, you started seeing more character interactions. Jewel, Jewel and Henson both said that this is where they learned how to write television. They did the Jimmy Dean show for three years, and they also went on the road with them. They kind of got this boot camp from these really experienced television writers. You know, and there's nothing like an old school 1950s, 60s television writer. I think they learned a lot. They didn't originally, Henson was not originally excited for the job. I don't know if he was ever super excited for the job. Bernie Brillstein, I listened to an interview with Bernie Brillstein where he was kind of like, eh, it was a gig, you know? It turned into so much more. And Bernie Bill, it's it's kind of funny. Everything I read about Jimmy Dean is about how affable he was and how humble he was and how him and Jim got along. But then I saw an interview with Brillstein where he just laid into Jimmy Dean. Oh, wow. And said he was miserable to work with and really difficult. And like it was so, you know, uh, it goes to show. I've, I've said it for years back when I worked in Hollywood. Every famous person has someone who thinks they're the best person in the world and someone who thinks they're a monster. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is weird. It is interesting watching this thinking that this isn't necessarily their work. I mean, it is in that they learn performance. What what they mm-hmm. were able to do was establish for except for three years. Rolf was on this show. Basically every episode showing up as Jimmy's old buddy, Rolf Henson became an exceptional performer during this time because he got to play. I like like Vincent D'Onofrio on Daredevil, right? Mm -hmm. Was able to create a more compelling version of the Kingpin than anyone else has ever been able to do because he had time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say the same thing with uh, on the TV show Hannibal. I'm not familiar with that one, but it's a it's a great show, and I actually think it's a more compelling vision than even Anthony Hopkins' version. Hmm. So, in his own way, Jim got to play Rolf for three years, playing against the same person. He got to develop a character. There were arcs, like you said. He's got a crush on Lassie. Eventually, Lassie came on the show. He learned how to develop a character and develop a rapport with someone. And while yes, it was it was scripted, and a lot of the things that one of the great talents of t- comedy writers like that is to make you feel like it's improv mm-hmm. when it's not. But if you look through the footage, there are some genuine moments where Henson adds a line or flubs a line that just cracks Jimmy up. He did break pretty often. Well, he's not really an actor, you know. He's a cow. He's a cowboy singer, you know. He had a novelty hit or two it it also fit into the the character that he was portraying that he would do that there was a genuine rapport there and i think that like if you and i are talking and i crack a joke that i probably shouldn't crack on any sort of recorded medium i'm probably going to get a begrudging laugh out of you i might also just get a weird look but there's like a non-zero chance that i'll say something and deliver it in such a way that you won't be happy that you're laughing but you're still gonna laugh right yeah i think that might have sold the relationship all the more uh, which isn't something that a lot of comedians can or really should do. But in this particular case, it felt right. The other thing I think that this really brought out, though, was, and you you hit on this last week, is the idea that when people are with a Muppet, they are not with the puppeteer. They genuinely believe that they are interacting, conversing, and having a relationship with, with that Muppet, right? Anyone who knows me knows I'm a Star Wars fan. I think one of the most important performances in all of Star Wars is Mark Hamill believing in Yoda. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Empire Strikes Back works if Mark Hamill wasn't able to completely believe 
in that character. In this, Jimmy Dean is not talking to Jim Henson. He is talking to Rolf. He believes in Rolf. He's even he said so in interviews that like he just completely bought in to this character. And the more I hear that story, the more I think maybe it's not the actors, maybe it's just the Muppets. <laughs> There's also something to to consider in that you've got two people who are behind the same face. And I I don't have anything particularly eloquent to say about this, but I wonder how that plays into a dynamic where it's much easier to just recognize that maybe Jim and Frank are underneath there, but Jim and Frank are both Rolf. So I can just say Rolf and whoever needs to respond is going to respond. It's good that you mentioned that because we're here. Frank Oz has joined the party now. The contribution that Frank is about to make, in the opinion of the old school Muppet people, Frank Oz was above and away the most gifted puppeteer of his generation. And here we are, ground floor, and all he's doing right now is he's playing the right hand of a dog. I believe that they are the greatest comedy duo in the history of entertainment. Oz and Henson. Not Piggy and Kermit, not Rolf. Henson and Oz are the best comedy duo in history. And what I love about this, this stuff is this is the beginning of it. This is where they're learning to work together. Frank is like 19 in this. He's just out of high school. He's so young. And actually, if you read about him, he was kind of angry and grumpy, too. He was kind of the, 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 the grumpy emo kid. But I love this stuff because I know who's under that dog. And what is building, what is happening, this relationship is being forged between these two men that for the next 25 plus years are going to become something very special together. And... I'm excited that Frank Oz is in our story now. Meow. Did I, did I just say meow? I always thought I was a dog, but I must be a cat. Oh, dear. Ralph, did, 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 did I overhear you? Did you just go meow? You, you think you're a cat? Why do you think you're a cat? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just do. Well, you know, a lot of people have delusions. Yeah. I think I'm a pussycat. Yeah. Some guys think they're Napoleon. Yeah. You think you're a singer. I can't help but like Jimmy Dean. Yeah. Watching these. I, I don't know what he said. It, conflicting opinions of what he was like in real life, but he's willing to make fun of himself. Like, mm-hmm. ha- half of the jokes between him and Rolf are Rolf making fun of Jimmy's talent, or lack thereof. Yeah, I was like... Either his music career or the size of his ears for a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I didn't put any clips on here of him making fun of the size of his ears because it doesn't make sense. But there are a lot of jokes about Jimmy Dean's ears because he had real big ears. Yeah, I don't know. He comes across as charming. He's non-threatening. That's for sure. But you can hear in these clips, you can hear in these exchanges that they it reflects what the Muppets are going to be a little bit. The sense of humor, I think, is different, but the... The, the craft is what they're learning. Mm-hmm. How to set up jokes in a way that, like like I said, while I thought Tale of Tinkerty was funny, this is like genuine muscular comedy writing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tight and it's professional. And the one thing that they were not, that the Muppets were not at this point, was professional. Even though they were making money. <laughs> even though they had their own TV show. Even though they were making a lot of money from commercials. I still would not call them professionals at that point. Definitely not professional writers. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought of Kermit as the Muppet and and he must have been the ground zero Muppet, you know, and mm-hmm. 
while he he predates Rolf, I think a combination of Don Celine's brilliant design. I don't think we can give Celine enough credit for what a wonderful puppet Rolf is. And then you also have Henson coming into his own as a performer because he's being forced to act. Remember, this is a man who for years on his own show didn't want to use his voice. Mm-hmm. Oz is even more reluctant. Oz, who is who has done some of the most famous voices in history for the first several years, refused. But Jim has to perform. He is going toe-to-toe with this charming guy who, no, is not the world's best actor, but he had to learn to interact. He had to learn all these things, and he's learning to work with Frank Oz at the same time. He's learning how to write. These, these shows, this three years on the Jimmy Dean show, are exceptionally important in the development of the Muppets. And I hadn't really thought about it until I really dug into it. And they're funny. Yeah. No, they were. it was a joy to watch. Early on when I was watching it, there was one episode where they made some kind of joke about women being in the kitchen. There's a, a female presidential candidate, I think. Yeah, which doesn't, doesn't hold up very well. Yeah, they, there was something that got past the radar, and I couldn't remember exactly how they phrased it, but it was something to the effect of people are pickling with not having kids or something like that. I'd have to go back and rewatch, but it was it was really clever, and I was really surprised to hear it. But, but look, look, look here, look here. There's even a national pickle week. Yeah, it's right after Mother's Day. Shame. Oh, shame on you people. A whole week for pickles and only one day for mothers. <laughs> That proves what I always thought. What? More people are getting pickled than becoming mothers. One thing I did want to bring up before we go, I, I didn't mention it before because we went over the Purina commercial so fast because, like we said, they're just not interesting, is that apparently Purina did offer Jim $100,000 to buy Rolf, and Bernie Brillstein jumped at it, and Jim immediately shut it down and said words that that Brillstein has repeated often and that Brillstein learned was the rule when dealing with Jim Henson, which is never sell anything I own. Yeah, and I want to give Brillstein a lot of credit for trusting Jim with that too. So you have to imagine a lot of other agents would have just pushed really hard. Yeah, Brillstein, he's a fascinating cat, and, and he's going to come into the story more later. We'll talk about him some more, I'm sure. He was very instrumental. He was Jim's agent for the rest of his life. One of the things we're doing right now is we're establishing, we're following Jim Henson as Danny Ocean as he's putting together his team. And now we've got, so far, just to keep track, we've got Don Celine, master puppet builder. We've got Jerry Jewell who, yes, starts off as a puppeteer, but is going to be the writer of the Muppets. And now we have Frank Oz. And over the next couple of episodes, we're going to meet two or three more people that are going to form what anyone would consider the core of the Muppets. And they're all interesting, fascinating men, and I can't wait to get into them. But this is the beginning of him putting together his team. But, but, but can, you, can you name an animal? Who is more loyal than a dog? Ah, ah, yeah. Now, there you go. That's that's true. All right. Now, just take, for instance, Mm -hmm. there are two of us drowning in the middle of a street. Elizabeth Taylor and me. Mm. And you can only save one of us. Which one would it be? (laughs) 
You're, you're right. A dog like me doesn't deserve a day. <laughs> but, but, but there are nine million other dogs who do. Yeah. So dogs of America, we're going to fight to the finish. Right. It's doggy dog. What a beastly thing to say. How about that? I'm sorry. But dogs of America, we must never give up. Never give up. Fight to the finish. Fight to the finish. Justice for us dogs. Justice for us dogs. Let's go. Well, hello, Rover. <laughs> With the Jimmy Dean show, the Muppets had found real success. Rolf, like Kukla, Ollie, Charlie McCarthy, and other beloved puppets before him, had moved beyond the cloth and stitches that gave him form, beyond the men giving him motion and voice. He was alive, he was a person, and he was a damn TV star. Things couldn't get much better. The Muppets were now in big-time show business, entertaining millions every night. But what Jim Henson really wanted to be doing was making an avant-garde short film about the passage of time. Next week, things get weird. Yeah, they really do. They get they get they get kind of weird. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. Lunaticdaring.com at lunaticdaring on all your social media platforms. I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, we'll 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 talk to you next time. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.